Father, thank you again for this church family, for the love that we experience here that uh, is unique because you are the source, even as imperfect as we are. We thank you that we can share your love with one another and with the world. And I pray this morning that as we uh, consider what your word has to say, that uh, because you love us so much, you will, I mean, you want to speak to us more than we want to hear from you. And I just pray that we would be ready to hear from you this morning, that your word would speak powerfully to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord uh, shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from, the mit- from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This is the word of the Lord. And it's my privilege, go ahead and be seated, it's my privilege this morning to introduce to you a brother in the Lord who also happens to be my brother-in-law, Chris Colwell. He's going to be speaking to us this morning. Uh, we've known each other for more than 36 years, and we're still friends, so that's really cool. And so it's, it's my pleasure to invite him to come and speak to us this morning. I brought up some water. I'm a little nervous, so. Actually, I shouldn't even admit that, huh? You just be brash. Uh, What do they say? You fake it until you make it? Actually, um, I was going to say when when my brother-in-law, Don, uh, got up here to read Scripture, I was like, wow, already? Aren't there a few more songs to sing? Aren't there some other things we need to do? But no, it it, it went quick, so. Uh, All right. Let me just, you know, I I had thought about, for me, uh, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself, and I'll try to be brief. Um, I was a, I I grew up in a pastor's home. uh, Shirley is my older sister. Um, even though she looks younger, she, she is older. Um, that was pretty smooth, wasn't it? Okay. That's why I'm friends with Don. Um, I treat uh, his wife well. 
most of the time. And that's usually because I'm just afraid of her, um, <laughs> um, to be really honest. Uh, that, that was kind of uh, growing up. It, it's, it's ingrained. <laughs> um, no, so I grew up in a, a, a pastor's home. Uh, our father was a pastor from the time uh, he was a pastor when I was born. And uh, so I grew up in the church, grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, I have uh, two older sisters, Shirley and Janet, and then I have a younger brother. And then we had a stream of uh, foster brothers. I think it was primarily brothers, maybe a, uh, one or two sisters. And, but we had uh, foster kids that came through. So our, our family was a uh, certain size, and then it would expand, and then it would uh, contract, it would expand and contract. Um, but uh, that modeled uh, grace and compassion to me uh, and to uh, my siblings uh, throughout our lives. Um, and so, so I grew up uh, in a pastor's home. I felt uh, called of God to, to go into the ministry uh, at the, probably about the age of seven, I think. And uh, so I, that was, you know, that, those were the days when uh, you know, they had altar calls at the end of the service, so I would go forward, and I, I expressed that. Uh, and uh, so I pursued the ministry from, not continuously, I mean, at age seven, you get a little distracted, right? <laughs> um, so, but I pursued the ministry uh, throughout my life, went to school, uh, college, went to seminary, uh, and then I became a pastor, ended up returning to uh, the same church uh, in which I'd grown up, and uh, pastored there for a little over 12 years. And, uh, and then, even though I had felt called to the ministry, I hit a, I hit a point where I just was like, oh, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, there were certain parts of being a pastor that I loved. There were certain parts of being a pastor that I didn't love. And uh, speaking, speaking, uh, being with people, ministry, that side I loved. Uh, the, as a senior pastor uh, of a smaller church, you, you tend to have administrative responsibilities. So uh, that, 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 was, that was not so much my cup of tea. Um, and so over time, uh, that side of things kind of just burned me out. I just kind of uh, got, we'll just call it burned out. So so I hit that around, uh, I'd been in ministry about 14 years, all told probably, and, uh, and at that point then I said, I need to do something different. I had, at that point, I am married, um, I thought you were signaling, so, okay, and I don't, I don't understand sign language, so I, I really didn't understand it, so, um, but um, I'm married, I should... I should say that. I'm married and I have, uh, I have five kids. My wife always takes issue because when I introduce myself and I say I have five kids, she uh, corrects me and, and says six because our second born uh, was a little boy uh, who lived about two months and, uh, and he, had a, he was born with a heart defect. So I say five, not discounting our son Kyle, but uh, in my wife's mind, it's always six. So for Jill, <laughs> I have six kids. So anyway, the reason I back up a little bit is because when I hit that point where I decided I, I wanted to do or I needed to do, to do something different, well, you have to understand that I was, I'd been, I, all of my studying had 
been preparing me to be a pastor. Now I had a wife and five kids, and I was saying, okay, I need to do something else. And I was like, well, I have a wife and five kids that I have to support, so what can I do? Um, It so turned out that uh, prior to this, I had been asked to become uh, a volunteer chaplain at our local police department in Scotts Valley. Scotts Valley is a small city, about 11,000 strong. Um, and so I was the volunteer police chaplain. When they found out that I was, uh, was considering changing careers, um, are you falling asleep, Ed? <laughs> okay, okay. I'm trying to get you to fall asleep. You know, th- no. Um, so I... Uh, so at that point, they actually said, hey, have you ever thought about being a, a police officer? And I, <laughs> I basically, basically said, no, I've never, not once. I can honestly say, <laughs> not once had I ever thought about being a police officer. Um, and, uh, and so th- they said, well, hey, you, you know, you, that might be a great, it might be a great fit. Scotts Valley's a smaller city, the department's smaller. Uh, it, you know, you work with people. And so that, that plan to the thought as a result of that, I actually began to explore that. And I ended up becoming a, a police officer. Um, and, and I did that up until... I'm, actually, I'm still doing that. I, I kind of uh, retired from that because although I look really young... Um, I'm, I felt like I was getting old enough to the, to the point where, you know, being on the street it might not be a, a good idea. So I retired from, from law enforcement. However, I'm, I'm back working there uh, part-time, just kind of helping them out. Uh, because it's, once I left, they started falling apart. Uh, I don't know what it was. Um, that's not true. But, but they, they need a little help. So, so I've been helping out there. But um, so where was I? I so that's me. We'll stop there, all right? So, so that's me. Um, one of the things that uh, I had modeled for me, just to back up, one of the things that I had modeled for me as a, as a, a child, which I mentioned, was uh, we had foster kids in and out of our home um, when I was growing up. Uh, my mother and father uh, uh, embraced that and uh, invited and, and took care of, of uh, numerous uh, children of different ages. Um, and... Over the years, I had modeled for me um, the attract. Uh, what I'll say, uh, uh, or I'll call the attractiveness of grace, the attractiveness of generosity, uh, and of of compassion. Um, my my mother was the embodiment of that, um, and so that has been. Uh, bred into me and, and, and driven in a positive way, driven into me uh, since I was a child. Um, and yet, I have found as an adult, even as I pastored and then as I became a police officer, as a father, I have found that um, due, to the, uh, due to my human nature, and maybe you can relate to this as well, due to my human nature, due to uh, our, my immersion in this culture, in which, uh, in which we're, we're constantly uh, uh, promoting the, the American dream and pursuing wealth and pursuing material possessions. Because of that, um, compassion tends to so often uh, just kind of slide into the background or generosity or whatever you want to call it. I, I, I'm going to use some of those terms uh, interchangeably, really. 
um, or grace. It just it tends to get it slide into the background and it gets pushed out of place because we're so busy pursuing pursuing life and pursuing uh, you know whatever it is that that our goals are, and as a result, those types of the, the things get pushed out. So what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to just take some time and with, it, it, with broad strokes, I'm, I'm not, you know, looking to, to dive down and, and get into the meaning of everything, but with broad strokes, I just want to encourage us um, to return or to, or to pursue a life of grace, a life of, of generosity, and so what, so what I wanted to do is just pose this question, what is attractive about grace? And I wanted to, to ask, uh, if you could just uh, cue that, that video, I just wanna, uh, want you to watch something and then I just want to pursue it from there, okay? The story behind a photograph that made its way around the world today, showing something small but infinite, the power of one random act of kindness. ABC's Dan Harris on The Policeman and the man who had no shoes. A New York City police officer on a frigid November night in Times Square, bending down to give a homeless and shoeless man a pair of brand new boots. This scene would have gone unnoticed, except Jennifer Foster, a tourist, just happened to be there. I heard him quite clearly say, I have these size 12 all-weather boots for you. Let's, Let's take care of you. She surreptitiously snapped this picture and sent it to the NYPD. The department posted it to Facebook two days ago, and tonight it has almost 2 million views, 400,000 likes, and more than 28,000 comments. It's also been passed around the globe from Romania to Russia to China. And today, the officer himself came forward. He is Lawrence DePrimo, an unfailingly polite 25-year-old who still lives with his mom and dad. So I went up to him. I was like, buddy, I was like, where's your socks? Where's your shoes? He was like, I never had a pair of shoes. It's okay, officer. I said, but God bless you. So I knew right then I needed to help him. When you presented him with the boots... What was his reaction? He couldn't believe it. Uh, he's like, this is too much, officer. You know, he's like, God bless you and be safe and everything. And uh, like I said, it was almost like you just gave him a million dollars. Officer DePrimo doesn't know anything about the man he helped or what's become of him, but he keeps the receipt for the $75 he spent on those boots in his bulletproof vest, a reminder for all of us about the pervasiveness of need and the potential for compassion. Dan Harris, ABC News, New York. Do you recall that? Um, I, I recalled that because it was so striking to me. Um, one of the things I've noticed is, that I, I pulled that one out, but have you noticed that, well, it kind of goes back and forth, but uh, quite often you'll see those types of stories that pop up um, about, and I pull, I pull the one about a police officer because, well, I, I'm a police officer, so uh, that resonates with me. But um, my question to you is this. What is it about that type of an act that causes people to, to respond that way? Over 2 million, uh, what are what they, likes or whatever. I, 2 million responses with, with all kinds of, uh, it, you know, it, it goes, they say it goes viral or whatever. What is it about that type of action that causes people to respond that way. 
I'm used to teaching Sunday school, so I'm actually waiting for a response. So, so. What's that? It doesn't happen very often. It doesn't, it, 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 um, it doesn't happen very often because it's what? It's, it's, not, it's kind of out of character. Um, in, any other? Selfless. Because it's selfless? Because there's something beautiful about it, isn't it? I, I look at that and I go, I don't know. I think there's, it's both. It's, it's unexpected, especially in the busyness of life, and especially, I think, with police officers, especially nowadays, the, the, the perception of police officers is that uh, they're, they're hardened, they're, they're violent, they're, they're, they're out to make the arrest and, and take care of business, and there's some truth to some of that, but because it's so unexpected, it's, it's, it's striking. It gets our attention. But I also, also believe that the reason is it's, it's something that's attractive. It's beautiful. It's something that, that you go, wow, that, it, gives you, <laughs> it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, uh, not that I advocate warm, fuzzy feelings, although they're good. I actually enjoy them uh, myself. But, uh, but there's something attractive, there's something beautiful about acts of grace, acts of generosity, because they're unexpected, because they're undeserved maybe, because it's, uh, because it, it, just because they're beautiful. I, and it reminds me of the, the passage in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. I'm loosely uh, quoting that. And one of the things that, uh, that I want to do this morning is this. I want us to, to see the beauty of grace, the beauty of generosity, and I want us to understand that God calls us to that kind of a lifestyle, and I want to encourage and challenge us to pursue that kind of a life. So let me just, so let me just jump in, and I'm going to just start with this. Um, I want to just read you uh, just a sampling of some of Scripture where God makes it clear, where God calls us to this kind of a lifestyle. And I guess the other thing I wanted to say before I, I, I do that, and let me ask you real quickly in the back, um, what time do you normally get out? It's... Okay. So about 12, 12, 15. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Um, okay. So one of the things I... Uh, one of the things I, I kind of uh, skipped over or is this. As I move forward this morning, I do, I do want to make it clear that, um, that, uh, that the context is this, that we have been saved and we have been transformed by grace. So, so the work of Christ on the cross... Uh, has, has brought us salvation, right? And so when I go into uh, some of these passages of Scripture, and when I start to, because I'm going to read some things that, that it's going to make us uncomfortable. Um, but I want to I make sure that we understand that, that I'm not calling you into a life of legalism. 
I'm not, I'm not trying to slam you over the head and make you feel guilty uh, because we, we have been bought with a price. Jesus purchased our salvation. It's not as if we have something to earn. We don't. And so, but as a result of the grace that's poured into our lives, I believe God calls us to, to live that grace out in, and, and to share that with others. So, so keep that in mind as we move forward. Um, so let me start with this, Colossians chapter 3. You can turn to these, these passages with me or you can just listen, all right? But Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, gentleness, and patience. And then go to uh, Matthew 22. And I, I noticed on your, uh, I think it was the front of your bulletin, that you have uh, uh, the, great, the greatest commandment uh, on there. And, and that's what this passage is as well. So go to Acts, or, or Matthew 22. Beginning in verse 34, where the writer says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I find that so striking uh, that, that when asked what the greatest commandment is, he starts with love God. Obviously, clearly, uh, the most important commandment. And yet, it's striking to me that Jesus didn't stop there, but that he moved right from loving God into loving your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then to bring it home, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's a, that's a huge statement. That, that's, in other words, he says, you can sum up all of Scripture, all the, or at least all of the Old Testament, all of the law in the Old Testament, all of the, the words of the prophets, you can sum all of that up with these two commandments. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you go back to uh, Isaiah 58, which Don read to us, uh, it makes it clear that when, when Jesus says love your neighbor, he's not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling, is he? He's talking about con- love as a concrete action. It's a, an active verb. It's something we do. It's driven by our heart, absolutely, but it's action. It's, it's grace. It's being compassionate. It's being kind and gentle. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. And then go to Galatians. I'm just trying to, again, this broad brush, uh, uh, I just want to kind of show us just how uh, prevalent and how, what a, pri- uh, what a priority God ma- makes uh, compassion and kindness. Go to Galatians chapter 5. And I'll get there eventually. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where, where Paul writes, You, my brethren, uh, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul reiterates what Jesus has already said. The entire law is summed up in one single command, Paul says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn to, uh, uh, turn to Ephesians, just the very next book. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, where Paul writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me read that to you again. Be imitators of God and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. So how are we to love our neighbor? We're to to love just like Jesus loved us. And Jesus loved us to the point where he, he, remember 2 Corinthians, where although he was rich, he became poor. Jesus gave up all that he had as the Son of God, and he came down and he pitched his tent among us. He became human. He, he lived and he suffered the way we do, none of which he had to do. And then ultimately, what did he do? He gave his very life on the cross. So, so when, when God calls us, when we read these passages of Scripture, love your neighbors yourself. Be kind, be compassionate. Our ultimate example is Jesus, and really, that's, you, you can't get more extreme than that. And live a life of love, Paul says, just in the same way as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And that, again, that brings me to that 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, where it says, for you know the grace. And, and I wanted to hit that again because, again, when I talk about the attractiveness, attractiveness of generosity, when I talk about generosity, compassion, love, all of those are an expression of grace. Grace. It's, it's the gifting of something not necessarily deserved. Maybe, it, you know, maybe some of the acts of love that we, we come up with are deserved. But grace is a gifting of something that's undeserved. 
So when we talk about compassion, when we talk about generosity, when we talk about kindness, it's, it's not a matter of somebody earned something, somebody did something to deserve it. It's the fact that God calls us to live a life of grace where we gift others whether they deserve it or not. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, how was he rich? Well, he, he was God. Can't get richer than God, right? Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Extreme poverty to the point of giving up his very life. And then one more passage. Not that it's the last one of the message, but one more passage. First Timothy. Chapter 6. It's in here somewhere. First Timothy 6, uh, verses 17 and following say this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I have to be honest with you. Um, talk about Jesus, give, uh, though he is rich. Oh, that makes sense to me. And then I read this passage. I have to admit that in, in past years I would read that and to, to be quite honest, I would go, oh, well, he's talking to somebody else because he says, command those who are rich, right? I mean, come on, come on, I'm a, I've been a police officer, I have five kids, I'm, I'm not rich, I'm not well-to-do, I'm not wealthy, I'm not, I'm not part of that 1% that we hear about in the media, right, and from our politicians. And I, I dare say most of us here would, would have that same inclination, that same kind of gut reaction of, well, that's not talking to, to me. I'm not rich. So uh, let, me just, <laughs> let me just read something to you and see if we can change our perspective, okay? This is, again, this is a book called uh, The Hole in Our Gospel. Anybody familiar with this? Anybody? My, my sister and brother-in-law are, no? No. You know what? Um, that's too bad, but at the same time, it's kind of exciting because now I can introduce you <laughs> to the book. This is a book that was written back, I believe, in 2009, 2010 by a, a man by the name of Richard Stearns. Uh, he's the president, the CEO of World Vision, which is a Christian uh, relief organization. It's been around for decades, for a- almost, I believe, 70 years. Um, or at least over 60 years. And he wrote this book several years ago. Let me just read to you what, what he has to say. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull out my reading glasses. Makes me look more... I don't know what it makes me look like. All right, it just makes me look older. Okay. 
uh, he says uh, this, whenever, oh, <laughs> I, I grabbed the wrong passage. Hold on. <laughs> I, I should have warned you right up front, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, okay, here we go. He says this, let me start with the good news. You're rich. I look at you and I look at you through these reading glasses and you're all, you're all blurry. Let me just take them off, then I can see you. All right, he says, he says, let me start with the good news. You're rich, we're rich, and the church in America is rich. And now, I am sure you're thinking that I'm wrong, that you're not rich, and neither is your church. But bear with me, because wealth is always measured in relative terms. Brace yourselves for this good news. If your income is $25,000 per year, you are wealthier than approximately 90% of the world's population. If you make $50,000 per year, you are wealthier than 99% of the world. Does this shock you? Remember, of the, and it's now, he says 6.7, but it's now about 7.5 billion people. Uh, Of the 7.5 billion people on earth, almost half of them live on less than $2 a day. If you don't feel rich, it's because you're comparing yourself to people who have more than you do. Those living above even the 99th percentile of global wealth. It's also because we tend to gauge whether or not we are wealthy based on the things we don't have. If we think we need a bigger house or apartment, a nicer car, more clothes, or the ability to go out for dinner more often, we often don't or we don't feel rich. Again, it's all, a, it's all relative to our expectations. When you realize that 93% of the world's people don't own a car, and this, could, this might have changed in the last few years. This was about back in 2010. Um, I believe over in China and, and some of those countries, they're starting to buy cars uh, a lot. Um, when you realize that, 93, uh, that 93% of the world's people don't own a car, your old clunker starts to look pretty good. Our difficulty is that we see our American lifestyles as normative, when in fact they're grossly distorted compared to the rest of the world. We don't believe we are wealthy, so we don't see it as our responsibility to help the poor. We are deceived. And that's when, when I read some of these things that he wrote, and then I look at that verse and it says, command those who are rich in this present world. And, and then it dawns on me, I am one of those that, that's rich. Would Paul say that you and I are rich? And I, I don't know what your financial status is or, or where, where you're at, but the, the vast majority of us fall into what he's talking about. Command those who are rich, Paul says, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous 
and willing to share. I was thinking about that whole, I don't feel rich, and I think he's right. That's probably because I'm comparing myself to, to those that have more than I do. And yet it was interesting, it was striking to me, I was, I was sitting in Starbucks, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, recovering, um, a recovering addict of, uh, of Starbucks, um, and, uh, but I was sitting in Starbucks, we had driven to Scotts Valley from Santa Maria where we live now, and I was kind of trying to work on this and preparing, and I, I was reading some of, of what he had to say, um, and he talked about, in another section, he talks about how, again, and he mentioned it, that almost uh, half the world's population live on less than $2 a day. It's about 40%. Less than $2 a day. And that another, I believe it's, uh, what is it, 15% of the world um, live on uh, less than a dollar a day. And I was reading this, and I was, I was kind of just trying to prepare for this morning, and it dawned on me that I, I was sitting in Starbucks, and I had a drink in my hand that cost me $5.25. And it's not the first drink I've gotten at Starbucks. I, uh, <laughs> as, as a police officer, you've got to get coffee, right? And no, we don't eat donuts, all right? Um, but Starbucks became, when I was, uh, when I was a police officer at, uh, over the years, Starbucks became the place we went for coffee. And over the years, it's become <laughs> my go-to place almost every day. I think about it. Somebody living on $2 a day, and I'm buying a drink almost every day that costs more than twice that. Am I rich? I'm rich. I just don't, I may not feel like it. I'm rich. So now let me take you back to those words of Jesus in Matthew 22 where he said, what, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love God. But then he shifted right into, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you go to, to Luke chapter 10, and we, well, we'll read it. Luke chapter 10. No, we won't. Um, because we're running out of time already. Uh, so in Luke chapter 10, uh, it, it's a different expression of that where Jesus is, is, is talking about the greatest commandment. And this time, uh, the expert in the law basically says, well, he follows up Jesus' statement with love your neighbor with the, the question, well, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus proceeds to tell that story of the Good Samaritan in which uh, the man is, is, is on, his, uh, on the road, he gets robbed, he's beaten, and uh, left for dead, or left to die. A priest walks by, uh, sees him, uh, crosses to the other side, and, and, and just avoids him and keeps going. A Levite, Jesus says, does the same thing, sees him, goes over to the other side of the road, and, and, and goes right on by. Then comes the Samaritan. You're all familiar with this story. I don't even need to tell you the story. The Samaritan comes by, sees the man. He's moved with what? Compassion. He's moved with compassion. He stops. He bandages the man's wounds. He puts him on his donkey, and he, and he takes him to the nearest inn where he continues to take care of him, and then he basically gives the innkeeper uh, some money and basically says, would you take care of this man, and I'll pay you the difference if there's more when I return. Jesus then says, 
who, which is interesting to me because he flips it around. He says, love your neighbor as yourself, and then he flips it around, and when he questions the expert on the law, he basically says, who then was the neighbor? And the expected answer is the Good Samaritan. Now, if you, uh, if you had read that story 2,000 years ago or, or listened to Jesus' words, or uh, in fact, for most of the last 2,000 years, your understanding of neighbor would have been what? Would have been uh, somebody who's li- pretty much that, th- my neighbor, somebody who's living immediately next to me, somebody who's in my community, somebody who is, who, who's, who's physically present or near. Because for, the past, for most of the past 2,000 years, we were fairly limited in, ha- in, in our communication, in our travel, in, in our ability to help. And so when Jesus told the parable, they would have understood the, uh, my neighbor as um, anybody in need that I'm aware, uh, general understanding, anybody in need that I become aware of that need and I have the ability to help, okay? Their understanding would have been limited. But it's interesting that Jesus, in telling the story, uses the Samaritan as a good, uh, good neighbor because the Samaritan was, uh, you would assume that the man who was robbed was a Jew, and the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And so, so there's, there's that going on. But then think about now. So Jesus says, who's your neighbor? Or we ask Jesus, who's my neighbor? Well, now I have access to the Internet. I have, I have almost instant, don't we have almost instant access to any action, any incident, any uh, hurricane, earthquake, whatever, at, at any place in the globe, right? I, we know it almost instantly. So there's my awareness, right? Now, now I'm, I can, I'm aware of the needs, not only of the person living next to me, the person in my church. I'm aware of the person thousands of miles away. And then, and then consider also um, the ability. Back then, they had, they had it, it was, they, their mode of travel was donkey, foot, maybe a chariot. We got cars, you know, along the way. Now you can fly anywhere in the globe. You can get from point A here to someplace in Africa, someplace in China, within a matter of hours. And, and so we live in an age where our awareness has expanded exponentially and where our ability to, to do something and to help has expanded exponentially as well. So then you ask the question again, who is my neighbor? Well, it's no longer limited. My neighbor is no longer just the person next door or the person uh, in my community or my county. Because now I'm aware of, of the need elsewhere. So let me just read you, and again, we're almost out of time. So let me just read you a couple things. In fact... I won't read that. Let me read this. Um, just a couple examples. The Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, 
Here's some fast facts. 13.5 million people in Syria need humanitarian assistance due to a violent war that began in 2011. Five million Syrians are refugees, and 6.3 million are displaced within Syria. Half of those affected are children. Children affected by the Syrian refugee crisis are at risk of becoming ill, malnourished, abused, or exploited. Millions have been forced to quit school. Most Syrian refugees remain in the Middle East, in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. Slightly more than 10% of the refugees have fled to Europe. Peace negotiations continue despite an inconsistent ceasefire. There, there's just fast facts. Boom. But think about that. We hear about it in the news, right? Syrian uh, refugee crisis is not something new. It's not something that we're not aware of. But think of the sheer numbers. 13.5 million people in Syria need humanitarian assistance. 5 million Syrians are refugees. 6.3 are displaced. Now, shift regions. Africa. Uh, Here's some hunger facts you need to know. This is from World Vision, from their website. An estimated 1.4 million children could die this year from famine-like conditions in South Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, and Yemen, according to the UN Children's Agency. Kenya's government expects that 4 million people will need help by July 2017. That we're there. About 700,000 Kenyan children younger than five are facing starvation. It's almost a million. Disease outbreaks have plagued Ethiopian communities amid worsening food insecurity. Crop and livestock losses and water shortages in Somalia have caused more than 440,000 people to leave their homes since November, November 2016. Severe drought and widespread food insecurity are ravaging entire communities in Niger, Chad, Nigeria, Cameroon, parts of the southern African region, and in Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula. About 10.7 million people need humanitarian assistance in the Lake Chad Basin, just that one area, which includes northeastern Nigeria, northern Cameroon, eastern Niger, and southwestern Chad. More than 500, excuse me, more than 500,000 children are suffering severe levels of malnutrition. The refugee and food crises have swelled for two years due to ongoing extremist attacks and mass displacements in the region. I look at those, I, I read those things, and, and I look at other statistics. In the book, he talks about how um, uh, roughly 26,500 children die every day of poverty-related causes. Think about that. 26,000 children. And then I ask myself again, so who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? My neighbor is anyone in need that I'm aware they're in need of, they're, they're in need, and I have, and where I have the ability 
to hell. So now, let me read to you again the passage that Don read. Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you, I find this so striking, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. We live in a world that, that is uh, experiencing suffering on a scale that's unimaginable. I don't see it every day because, like you, I'm here. And I've been blessed to, be, to have been born I- I- here in America. So I, I experience all the blessings of abundance that we as Americans have. And so uh, quite often I, 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 I don't see and I'm not aware or I'm not thinking about. It's not that I'm not aware because there, it's out there, right? It's just that I'm so busy with, with life, with taking care of my kids or work, going to work uh, and all of the other things that, that draw our attention that I fail to see and I'm not mindful of the need the desperate need that these people have. So let me just, I, I, I'm out of time, so let me just wrap up. Um, so, so how will we respond? Or how will you respond uh, to God's call to love your neighbor as yourself? I would just like to, I would just like to, here's the thing, I just want to start the conversation. This was a, one of the things that I struggled with the most in trying to prepare this uh, message was <laughs> it's just a one message. <laughs> and you could, you could spend, uh, you know, weeks on, on this, this very topic. Um, and, and so uh, I, I was like, where do I, you know, where do I go? Where do I stop? So let me just make a couple quick suggestions um, in, in wrapping things up. How will we respond? The first thing I'm going to say is this. You have to be intentional. I'm aware, I've been aware of these things, but have I been intentional about responding to the needs? Okay? I have to, it, it has to be something that, that you set, uh, set out to do. You have to be intentional. So I would like to encourage you, covenant with God today that you will at least begin to educate yourself. And, and, and 
seek to become more aware of, of the needs around you. And I'm not trying to ignore the needs here. I'm just saying there's, uh, there's, there's such great needs around the globe in, in some of these different regions. So covenant with God that you're going to start to move forward and that you're going to pursue becoming a person of grace, a person of compassion, a person of generosity. Because I don't believe we have the excuse of not being able to. I'm rich. God has blessed me. Therefore, I have a responsibility to respond. So be intentional. And so here's the three things I'm going to suggest. Educate yourself. What does God say about justice, about compassion, about generosity? An excellent place to start, and I would highly recommend this. Go, on, go to Amazon today. This could be the first step you take. Buy this book. This book was, I read this, I had it for months before I actually finally picked it up. And I finally picked it up and started reading it, and it was life-changing for me. It, it, it was so powerful. So, I would, so, so start there. So educate yourself. What does God have to say in His Word? Another way to educate yourself, check out worldvision.org or compassion.com. They have a wealth of information that can educate, that, that will give you a, a, an idea of what's going on in the world. In fact, the, the stuff I read about the Syrian refugees and, and, and hunger in Africa, all of that is from worldvision.org. Secondly, pray. God calls us to pray. And uh, I, would, I would start with this. Um, the founder of World Vision, a man by the name of Bob Pierce, who's no longer alive, uh, prayed this prayer on a daily basis. Lord, break my heart with what breaks yours. I would, I would suggest start with that. And then as you educate yourself at, uh, on going to worldvision.org or Compassion and you begin to learn what the needs are, then you can pray specifically for some of those things. But prayer, is, uh, uh, prayer moves things. Prayer, uh, uh, prayer is putting the power of God into play. But it also uh, engages us with God so that God can change our hearts. And that's really what needs to happen. So pray. And then thirdly, take action. Uh, one simple way of doing it, of taking action, would be uh, sponsor a child. I don't know whether any, anybody here is sponsoring. I'm sure some are. Uh, it's a simple, uh, straightforward, for $39 a month with, uh, with World Vision, you can sponsor a child, change their life and the life of their community. For $38 a month, you can do that with Compassion International. Um, the bottom line is God calls us, God has blessed us through Christ, but he's also blessed us abundantly materially, and God calls us to be generous and to share and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and I'll, and, and I'll stop with that. God calls us, how will we respond? I would encourage you to take a step. One, two, three steps. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, I I thank you for all of the blessings that you have bestowed on us. I so often, I so often get caught up in, in my, my daily problems or the struggles I might have or my inconveniences of not finding a parking space or, or something else. I'm so often focused on, 
on the, the trivial things that I struggle with. And not to say that all things I struggle with are trivial. Father, so often I'm distracted by those and I forget how incredibly blessed I am. I have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. I've been saved by grace through faith. And then I live in a country where I'm free to worship, where I've been blessed materially. So, Father, remind us of our blessings. Remind us of all that you've done for us. And then, Father, remind us and cause us to be aware of the needs in our world. And Father, I just ask that you would break our hearts, that you would break my heart day by day, and that you would make me into a generous person of grace. Teach us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.